Hey, folks, and welcome back to Butter With That, a podcast where some friends from Philadelphia get together to talk about all things movies. Uh, as you listeners know, we are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, that movie J-A-W-N, where you can find a lot of really great Philly podcasts, including ours. Uh, that <laughs> that would be a, a podcast hosted by myself, Dave, uh, as well as my cohorts here, Christine, Connor, and Sam. And we are doing a bit of a grab bag month uh, this this sort of theme is, is just sort of us covering a lot of things that we have wanted to cover for a long time or have maybe not found the appropriate theme or uh, avenue to discuss them yet. One of which would be uh, the film that I have selected for this week, which I'm very, very excited to talk about. But before we get into that, how's everybody doing? Has anybody seen anything they really want to talk about or uh, any new stuff that they'd recommend? Um, I saw Black Widow. And I would definitely recommend it. I think that Marvel did a really great job. One of my only complaints of the movie is that this should have happened a lot sooner. Um, and it really, it's really terrible that we got the 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 ending in Endgame for Natasha that we did. Um, I'm really upset and I don't think I'll ever be over that, but. Um, the movie itself is great, and it's some of uh, Scarlett Johansson's best acting because they actually gave her things to do. Uh, how about that? In, in, in her own movie. Um, but very good. I also saw Black Widow, and and I generally enjoyed it, especially the first, like, half. Everything with, like, David Harbour and Florence Pugh, I was a really big fan of. Um, and I do wish this movie came out because it takes place in 2016, so, like, just after Civil War. And this movie has been in development, I think, for like eight years at this point. Um, so a very long time. So it's a shame that it had to come out this time. But it maybe worked out because this movie does stand alone by itself. Like, it would be terrible if like Endgame was delayed like two years like Black Widow was almost. So I think it's I think it worked out that this was the one that had to be delayed because of COVID. Uh, but overall, I, I give it thumbs up. Did either of you guys see it in the, what I'm hearing is described as 4D experience? Like a roller coaster? <laughs> like like some kind of amusement? Honestly, park? you're not far off. So a friend of mine saw this movie in a, a theater with a, a, four, a 4D, they're terming it IMAX production, which is like an IMAX movie. But there's also like, almost like a, a, like immersive, like physical sensations. Like they'll be like misting almost like when scenes are like, rainy and stuff or like your seat will jostle you a little bit during fight scenes and stuff has, has anybody heard of this because it's the first time hearing about it and it sounds crazy this sounds like it would take me out of it right away like nothing faster maybe than like a screaming baby for an hour would take me out of a movie faster than this 4d experience you're describing i mean 3d takes me out of the experience already so i can't even imagine yeah at one point, there's an avalanche that happens. I can only imagine what 4D would be like with an avalanche. Um, and Connor, I just want to respond to you really quick saying that this movie came out uh, right when it should. Um, I hear what you're saying, but I really disagree because um, I think that women in general have just really been given the shit end of the stick um, in Marvel and um, that scene in Endgame where it's like, so we killed Natasha, but then like, here you go. Here are all the women that we have in this franchise and that the fact that they could fit in like one part of the screen together, that was supposed to be okay. Um, it wasn't. And um, Captain Marvel 
was boring. I hate to say it. It was boring. So we deserved this a long time ago. And quite frankly, I, I would have preferred to see this before Endgame because um, Natasha matters and um, she should have had a movie. She should have had her voice way before now. Well, some pretty high stakes stuff going on over there at Camp Marvel. Um, so interesting. Uh, Christine, anything uh, that you've seen that's really popped out recently? Um, I guess I've now like hopped on this train of like whatever like mystery series HBO puts out, I'll watch it. So I've watched the first two uh, episodes of The White Lotus. I'm intrigued. I like it's the tone is is really interesting. It's written by Mike White, um, who we talked about School of Rock and Orange County. Um, It's a very different tone. I'm intrigued. I like have some questions, possibly problems if they aren't rerouted or addressed, but I'm definitely uh, intrigued. It's like uh, a mystery set on a hotel in the middle of Hawaii. And (laughs) it's uh, the setting's really beautiful. And there's some, there's some fun uh, acting and like people who pop up. Like I love seeing Connie Britton like just pop up and stuff. She's, she's great. And uh, Steve, Steve Zane is in it playing her husband. (laughs) Anyhow. Yeah. I'm intrigued. I don't really have any like declarations about it, but I'll keep watching. HBO is usually pretty on point. So most of the material they put out, I'm usually interested in. I'll say that much. Yeah. It sounds like we've all been busy absorbing some, uh, some varied content. With varied expectations and varied uh, varied payoffs, one that uh, that really paid off for me uh, that I've been looking forward to talking to uh, to you guys about for a very long time. But again, uh, in keeping with our theme, is one that I've never found an, appro- an appropriate place to shuffle in. Um, is uh, this week's film that is uh, 2009's A Serious Man, uh, which is a dark comedy drama surrounding Lawrence Gobnik a Jewish physics professor whose life seems to be spiraling out of control in a series of simultaneously ghastly and hilarious calamities for which he seeks both logical and spiritual answers. Uh, The film was written and directed and edited uh, by filmmaking duo and brothers Joel and Ethan Cohen, who we've talked about before. Uh, Obviously, we discussed Fargo at one point, and uh, since I'm a big fan, you can count on more more of their movies coming down the pike at some point. Uh, but they utilize some of their longtime collaborators, uh, the great Roger Deakins directing the cinematography and wonderful music by uh, Carter Burwell, who is a frequent collaborator of theirs. Uh, largely a cast of unknowns for the most part. I mean, the cast includes uh, Michael uh, Stuhlberg, who, uh, or Stuhlbarg, who's really made a name for himself since this movie and has done a lot of theater work. Uh, of course, the wonderful, as always, Richard Kind. Uh, we have Fred Malamed, uh, Amy Landecker, Alan, Adam Arkin, and others. The film's budget ran uh, just over $7 million and went on to gross $31.4 million with a pretty limited release, uh, but was nominated for Best Picture at the 82nd Academy Awards and did go on to win several other noteworthy awards. Uh, as far as I know, I think this may be everyone's first time seeing this movie. Is that right? I'm getting nods all around. Awesome. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> that's uh, th- that'll be great. I mean, uh, it's a movie I've seen many times. I've seen it, I think, in prep. I watched it five times in the last two weeks, I think. 
if I'm remembering correctly, and have seen it several times before that. So uh, it's a movie that I know pretty well, but I'd like to hear some fresh takes on it and uh, see what you guys thought about it, uh, it being your first viewing. So going around the horn, what were our impressions of uh, Cohen's 2009 installment, A Serious Man? I never heard of this Coen Brothers movie until you brought it to our attention, Dave. And I feel like I've seen a few of their films, and this one felt, I guess in a good way, totally different. I feel like the Coen Brothers are good at like, sometimes like subverting expectations or like, I really had no idea what this movie was about, especially the prologue and then jumping ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess like 150 years or something like that. <laughs> um, 100 years. And so I was not a fan of this movie as it was starting. And I feel that way with some Coen Brothers projects where it takes me to like the end of the movie to finally like see where things were going, appreciate a lot of the performances and the tone and so I would say by the end of, as you know, the, as we were getting toward the end of the movie, I was really enjoying it, the journey of this guy, just all the shit that was being rained down on him. Um, Richard Kind, I absolutely adore and love. I forgot, I think I looked up before and I forgot he was in this movie. And so his name appeared in big letters during the t title sequence. I like jumped in my seat. I'll be out and, in a minute, just a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, it felt very like theatrical. Um, I don't know. Was, I, I have, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say on it and others, because um, I don't have a whole lot of like coherent thoughts, but I ultimately enjoyed it by the end and would and would rewatch it again. Not five times in one week, but um, <laughs> I would revisit it in the near future. I don't know. <laughs> um, I... I'm getting a lot of those from you lately, Sam. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm so sorry. But to be fair, right. I, I feel like I've had this reaction to nearly every movie that we've talked about in the past, like, two or three months. So I think it might just be me. I think I'm in, like, a weird headspace. But, um, you know, it's so strange. Like, the movie had me, and then it didn't. And then it did, and then it didn't. Um, I really loved the beginning, like the the prologue there. And I found like the the main idea of the story fascinating. I think just the Larry, the main character, like annoyed the shit out of me. And so I, I feel like I, I couldn't move past that. And there was definitely a moment where I was like, there's 45 minutes of this movie left. How? In what way? Um, but there were definitely parts that I enjoyed, parts that I thought were going to go one way and they went a different way that I appreciated. So uh, I don't know. I find that especially interesting, Sam, because I think uh, Lawrence Gopnik as a protagonist is a bit of a stand-in for the human condition itself. So to find him annoying, it's very interesting. It says a lot, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think... I kind of uh, was having the same thoughts as Connor was having. I was like, oh, this feels different, a little bit different than the other Coen Brothers movies I've seen. Yet, I think a through line or something that is really that really shines through in this movie is that they really are, at least I think, like pretty masterful storytellers. And I think this movie in particular focuses on uh, or hones in on sort of the art of a, of, a, of the story or of a fable or like like and how they sort of like or and how like humans innately desire to find meaning and patterns mm -hmm. in life and like 
I, and I also kind of, there were moments where I totally agree with you, Sam, where like the story was losing me a little bit, but then, but then it would, it would introduce a character or, or do something where I was like, oh, that was intentional. And like, it's a movie I've been thinking about a lot. Like it ended and I was like, hmm, okay. And then I found myself do working on something else today. And then like thinking about what I was trying to process about the movie. And it, and I really, yeah, love the idea of like using a sort of a small scale story to, as you said, Dave, to kind of meditate on the human condition and our desire to like understand what's happening in this like chaos of life. Um, and th there was one thing I kind of had issue with, like, although I thought the movie really, um, intentionally um, and craftfully relies on um, sort of elements of of caricature for storytelling and comedic effect. I found the character specifically of Clive, the South Korean student, to be airing into like stereotype and trope. And so I was like, I think it was like there were some issues with that character and that I we can maybe discuss later. But the, so there were it was like kind of like an interesting balance of draw like differently drawn characters um, within the realm of the story to sometimes I think uh, like good effect. And then sometimes to uh, in, in the case of that character, like what I found was like not great character writing. <laughs> yeah. I find that interesting also in the sense that, I mean, uh, uh, on the one hand, I do suppose I agree, um, but at the same time, I think this is a film that doesn't treat any of its characters in a flattering light, which, uh, which you know, is, is sort of the purpose of the film in a lot of ways. But I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm sure that that's something that we'll we'll be developing further as we discuss Clive and uh, his his impact on the story. And I think that's yeah. I think yeah, the Cohen brothers do a really. I think in other movies too do a really interesting job and a good effective job of sort of like navigating that line of like, like sort of outsized character and 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 unlikable characters. You're kind of trying to figure out what's going on with them, uh, with other characters that have more contour, more development. But like they always serve a function or a purpose, even if they're not dimensionally drawn, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So uh, launching into the film, uh, it opens with a quote from uh, Rashi, a famed rabbi and scholar who tells us to, quote, receive with simplicity everything that happens to you. Uh, this then launches us into the prologue uh, that we've discussed, which is a bit of a curveball given the rest of the film. It's an interesting way to set the tone. We open on a 19th century shtetl with a Jewish man telling his wife of a man who aided him in his travels during a blizzard. Uh, in his thanks, he invited the man back to their home for some soup. The wife tells him that the man, uh, Reb uh, Grushkover, has uh, died and therefore her husband has actually invited a Dybbuk, a malicious spirit, into their home. Grushker uh, arrives and is confronted by the wife who, dissatisfied with his explanations, stabs him in the chest with an ice pick. Uh, the man, uh, at first unharmed, rises, bids the two adieu, and then makes his way out into the snow. The, the husband laments that they are ruined, but the wife offers instead that, blessed is the Lord, good riddance to evil. Uh, what do we think about this opening prologue? It's uh, it's really not very in sync with the rest of the film, which the Coens have gone on to say that uh, it's really just an exercise in tension, uh, and it's not meant to be interpreted as 
necessarily connected to the rest of the film, but more setting a tone. Uh, do we but, think that it functions in that regard, or do we think that there's more to it that they're slyly avoiding in a very Cohen-esque way? That's it. They would say that because the whole they purpose would. of the movie is don't read into anything and don't try to make meaning because it's all shit anyways. <laughs> so like my instinct was to be like, yes, this is setting a tone, but it's also, a, it. I like what you say, Dave, a sly way of being like, this is setting up a story that you're going to want to read as sort of, uh, sort of the symbolism of, or like trying to, yeah, like establish a, 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 a theme, but we're going to say that it's not, it's just sort of a slapped on beginning. That's really has nothing to do with the rest of the story. <laughs> that's that's my take. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, this just triggered and I, a connection I made between um, the, the prologue. And then if I could jump to the very end of the movie, mm-hmm. there's this impending. Yeah, we're going to cover movie. all of it anyway, but go yeah. ahead. So there's, I just realized this kind of like nice book ending of, I didn't really think about the prologue in that way. I was really struggling and like, just, I was like, oh, Dave, Dave and Christine and Sam will figure it out probably <laughs> for me. Um, and so at the end of the movie, there's this impending tornado that doesn't really mean anything. I guess it's mm-hmm. sort of this. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I kind of like, I had a little gear click of sort of seeing what's kind of going on. A shot well, interesting. I was drawn into this laughing rabbi who had a nice pick in him and then uh, stumbled away. Yeah, I was like super into it. I was like, oh shit, this is interesting. If this is what this movie's going to be about, like, show me up. And then it wasn't. And I was like, oh, well, um, that's funny. Um, but I think that there are definitely moments that harken back to it throughout the film. There's been a lot of speculation over the years about what this is supposed to mean. And a lot of people have drawn the conclusion that uh, perhaps the Coens are avoiding saying that the uh, the wife and husband figures are 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 in fact kind of doomed because of this experience and that it it makes its way through the uh, the family lineage of the Gopniks and actually affects uh, both Arthur and Larry and Danny, uh, basically the the, you know, the males of the family moving forward. Um, I don't give much credence to that myself. I, I think that's just because I trust the Coens to, I, I, I both trust and distrust them instinctively as a big, big fan of theirs, because like, obviously this harkens back a little bit to like Fargo. This is based on a true story, which of course it's not. Um, and all these other like sly kind of like self-aware uh, subversions of expectation. And in this film, I think, it, you know, I, I think it does functionally serve setting a tone, but intentionally leaves unanswered questions because the film is about the unanswerability of some questions. So I think they get, they get it right in terms of uh, like suggesting to the audience that it doesn't mean anything grander because nothing in the film means anything grander if the world that they're creating is just chaos without answer. Uh, so I don't know. I find it to be captivating in that regard. I also find it to be a great exercise in tension. I mean, the pace, uh, the increasing and decreasing pace of the wife chopping the ice as she's listening to her husband's story, the kind of chilling silence after the knock on the door, after she acknowledges that he may have been followed home by a Dybbuk, uh, that we don't see, uh, that after she stabs him with the ice pick, he, he is just sort of like laughing and is seemingly unharmed and fine until she says uh, something to the effect of like, well, if, if you're a Dybbuk, then you wouldn't have been harmed by that, would you? And then oh, then and only then does he start to bleed and if, introducing the question of whether or not he is a Dybbuk or not and creating that more that sort of situational ambiguity. 
I could also see that prologue fitting nicely in that collection of uh, stories they did. The name of it, it's escaping me. Um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Yes, yes. Um, yes, yeah. the Ballad of Buster, Buster Scruggs. Um, in that it's like a nice sort of uh, exercise in short form uh, storytelling. And and uh, like I didn't enjoy all the Buster Scruggs stories, but they always – it really – it's just the Coens showing off that they can like – tell a really good story succinctly and, and in bite size effective chunks. But yeah, I, I could just see that as um, being a form that they enjoy and that that could have nestled nicely in, in that other collection. And there is another sequence in this movie that is basically in itself, its own micro movie too, that we'll get to. So yeah, they definitely play a lot with just sort of almost like interstitials or, or just sort of like asides uh, that are supposed to be connected well, that aren't supposed to be connected to the broader whole or are, you know, against the Coens. They, they tend to screw with people's minds a lot, viewers' minds a lot, so. Well, and I think it's also tied to the idea, too, of, like, storytelling. Like, there's a line in the movie where, oh, we're, you know, we're Jewish. We have our stories. Like, this is how we can mm-hmm. cope and process. And so I think by opening, and I think I read that they invented this, they didn't invent the Dybbuk, but they invented this specific, like, tale, like, this story of the husband and wife and the, you know, Dybbuk coming in. So it's also to, like, I don't know, there's, like, these stories, and, like, is this actually a helpful story that can help guide somebody? Which I think in the hands, if this script, in a lot of ways, functions similarly to a why, God, why, and then you're vindicated, or, you know, maybe a Job story, or there's a few different directions, and it doesn't really take any of those. Well, the story of Job, yeah, in particular comes up a lot. But yeah, I yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that a lot of what this movie is saying about, and the, the Coens themselves uh, raised within a, a Jewish family, that a lot of these parables aren't necessarily instructive so much as they are presentations of ideas, I guess. Which is great with the rabbi and the teeth, which I know we'll get to. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, after this prologue, though, it does launch us. Uh, it totally changes gears and changes tracks where we jump to St. Louis Park, Minnesota in 1967, which is roughly the area and era that the Coens themselves grew up in, uh, specifically within a largely Jewish community, uh, where we meet Lawrence Larry Gopnik, uh, played by Michael Sulbarg, who is a professor of physics at a local university. Uh, we see that he is being tested and x-rayed uh, at his physical while his son Danny is attending Hebrew school where Danny is planning to pay back a bully and dealer classmate with uh, for some pot that he bought. Which, by the way, yeah, probably not a great idea to buy pot from a bully, uh, specifically your bully, but, you know, eh, desperate times, I suppose. Uh, but... Uh, he keeps this uh, $20 that is owed to uh, this classmate in a portable radio, uh, which is playing Somebody to Love, song famously by Jefferson Airplane, which is then confiscated because he's listening to it during class. I love the Hebrew class. Uh, the instructor is speaking Hebrew and asking students to respond in kind, as would uh, a teacher uh, of a language. Uh, upon asking uh, a student a question, she offers... Ani lo, apologies for my Hebrew here because I, I'm not Jewish. Ani lo yadea, meaning I don't know, to which the, the teacher corrects her conjugation of that response. Uh, so it's it's not even that she he's correcting her answer. She basically didn't answer and said she doesn't know. But even then, the teacher is correcting her grammar, <laughs> which is really great. 
just rings very true to my Latin and Spanish education experience. I also love that uh, his classmates are they're seemingly pretty distracted, as is he, pretty bored. But uh, he, to a different degree, Danny is listening to uh, this this music while he's supposed to be learning this language, which is going to become pretty important later as we continue. The use of this song in this movie is brilliant. It's I, I'm obsessed with this song, and I was just like, thought it was just going to be like a little moment, like, oh, said giving us like setting. You know, mm-hmm. oh, all right, got it time period but then oh i won't give it away but it's so good <laughs> also love too the the characterization of some of his classmates when he gets on the bus it's just these like kids who have just learned how to curse so they're overcompensating and using it all of the time which also just rings really true to my youth i guess oh my god that hits so hard with me too i remember going to school in like fifth and sixth grade and you know the obviously everyone knows the Blink-182 song that's like, work sucks, I know. Um, I remember that we thought we were so cool by screaming, school sucks on our way to school. And then it just like progressed from there. So uh, I'm glad that's like a universal like experience. Like when we finally go, we can curse, we can do it, yes. It's like righteous rebellion through language. Finally, I'm subverting all these norms, but then you're use, you're devaluing the use of curse words themselves by using them all of the time. Um, so this, yeah, this really kind of sets the stage for us. I mean, we we see that um, that uh, you know Danny is at school. His radio has been taken away, which is going to become important later. Um, we see that uh, Larry is getting this physical, which again is probably something to keep in mind. And then we learn of Larry's approaching tenure. Uh, and the tenure board having received anonymous letters urging the board to reject his application. Uh, at the same time, Clive, who we've alluded to before, a South Korean student, has failed Larry's midterm and wants his grade changed. After Larry denies him, Clive leaves and Larry discovers an envelope of $3,000 on his desk, seemingly left as a bribe. Christine, I suppose this is a, a pretty good opportunity to launch into uh, what you what you had to say earlier. Not to put you I, on the spot. <laughs> well, no, it's fine. I, I like... I guess I thought we were going to get, I mean, okay. I guess in this movie meant like many characters just sort of serve, I wouldn't say as one dimensional functions, but like they serve essential functions in the scheme of the story, but aren't fleshed out or developed. And Clive is one of them, but I, I think the handling of his character could have been, done with with more nuance in in presenting a character that's not really supposed to be multi-dimensional like that's the tricky thing though right i mean he is he is a a function of he is to a degree a a a plot device in in setting as many of the characters are as as are many of the characters so yeah what what characterization would you have preferred be explored beyond that i'll have to think about that this was, I'll have to sit on it, but. Um, because I do think that the simplicity of that character is very important and very integral to its story. That yes. is the only South, well, one of the two South Koreans in the film and has that role specifically, perhaps isn't great. I'll agree, but I don't know what more you would have gotten from that character had they been cast with any other ethnicity, given that they are basically an avenue for the plot to domino in that way. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll have to, like, further conversation, I might, I might 
get to uh, an alternative or like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. I guess it's sort of like, well, why did he have to be South Korean? Like, couldn't, couldn't this just have been anybody? It could have been anybody. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Although it is, it is an opportunity to bring uh, a former Cohen regular back into their, their stable or from pull them from their stable into this movie uh, as we'll get to later. But as far as this whole interaction goes, I think it's a really great, really telling insight into Larry's character and perspective. Oh, is his um, is his dad? Let's just say it now, a, Mike Yanagina. Oh, okay, okay, Mike okay, Yanagina okay. from Fargo. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. okay. So we've we've talked about it's uh, the actor is Steve Park, who um, yeah. We've uh, we discussed before via another Cohen film, that being Fargo, where he plays uh, Mike Yanagina. He's the guy in the restaurant with mm-hmm, uh, with, uh, with Francis McDormand. Okay, interesting, interesting. So he's back at it again, and he has perhaps the most important line in the movie a little bit later on. But again, we'll get to Clive's father in a little bit. But I, again, I think there's a really telling insight into Larry's character in this interaction. Clive claims to understand, uh, for example, the. Uh, living cat slash dead cat illustration of Schrodinger's paradox without understanding the equation itself, uh, to which Larry offers, even I don't understand the dead cat, but the math is how it really works. Uh, it, this really pretty clearly expresses that Larry is a man who relies on logical, ordered, mathematical certainty to define a disordered world. You could say he's a serious man. Well, he's not that serious of a man, by contrast to the the person that we understand to be a serious man later on. Sigh. Correct, correct. Appleman is the serious man. <laughs> he is a serious man. Yeah. Or is it Abelman or is that? Sigh Abelman, yeah. A Sigh Abelman, yeah, yeah, yeah. And serious coming up, I mean, in one of my favorite lines, too. I mean, it's it's really drudged home. I mean, it's he's eulogized later on as a serious man. Spoiler alert, he doesn't make it through the film. But also... Uh, just in a dream sequence where he's talking to Larry again, obviously spoilers here. Uh, he's bashing him against the uh, chalkboard saying, I fucked your wife, Larry. I seriously fucked your wife. <laughs> so just the word serious and its import in this movie is really kind of hilarious and a through line. But again, yeah, we do see Larry as, a, a, again, in my opinion, sort of uh, a de facto standard for the human condition itself. Just sort of someone who is the human brain wired to seek answers and order in a disordered, chaotic world. And I think that this movie could have made some missteps if within the context of him being uh, a professor um, who is is a professor of mathematics, who is part of this like rich Jewish community and it's, it's cultural traditions and so on. It could have been one thing if this movie made him like an agnostic or made him uh, like a skeptic, but he, he, he is a relatively devout Jewish man, but he relies on ordered explanations of things rather than faith itself. I don't know. This this was probably intentional, but I just love like him trying to explain this huge equation to his students at the beginning of the movie. And then he just, he's a terrible teacher. He just goes, and of course this means that. And he just underlines two parts of the equation. It's mm-hmm. like no teacher would write this long equation. Don't not bother to explain it and then just be like, and of course, this is that. Although, I mean, when we do see uh, the other students' grades at the end of the movie, everybody else is getting A's and B's, so he's teaching them something, or at least they're <laughs> digesting his curriculum. It's so interesting, Christine, because I felt the exact opposite. Um, when, when he's talking to, to Clive in his office and he's like, uh, 
you understand my stories, but you really need to understand the math. Mm-hmm. To me, I got the impression of he's doing his best through um, these stories. You could see the, the cat that he drew on the board. So he's <laughs> trying to find other ways of having folks understand this, but like truly math is math and like you're going to get it or you're not. There's only so many ways that you can do that. Um, so it's interesting. And there was one moment where... Um, he, I think actually he says, and that is that. And then the camera pans out and you see this huge ass chalkboard. Filled with like, Yeah. Was that a dream or did that, that really happen? I, the, that that is that what is what I was talking about at, at the beginning. Um, and it, it might've just been like a, a suggestion of a longer lesson that just, and, you know, a teacher being like, and there it is, you know, or whatever. But I just, <laughs> just having a teacher be like, and of course that is that, and this equals this. <laughs> it's like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> well, we then go f- to learn a little bit more about Larry. We learn about his home life. Uh, Danny, his son is studying the Torah for his upcoming bar mitzvah. Uh, but rather than via the text, he's learning it via uh, sound, via through an LP, through a record. Um, so he's not actually he's he's studying the phonetics of it, but he's not understanding the language. He lives also with his uh, sickly older brother Arthur, who is uh, crashing on their couch, uh, played by Richard Kind, uh, who himself is working on a la- an elaborate mathematical probability map for the universe itself that he calls the Mentaculus. Uh, Arthur is always near, uh, nearly always occupying the bathroom to drain a spacious cyst to the frustration of Sarah, Larry's daughter, uh, who you know wants to be able to do her hair so she can go out to the hole, which was apparently a student union in Minnesota that was uh, like a, just sort of like one of those early um, like early uh, student activity uh, programs. Also, his wife Judith uh, approaches him for a divorce. Seemingly out of the blue, uh, she also wants a get, which is a ritual divorce, so that she can go on to remarry Cy Abelman, uh, a tangential acquaintance of the family. Uh, on top of all this, his neighbor, a uh, seemingly bigoted Gentile, is encroaching on his property line in hopes of building a boat shed. Uh, so there are a lot of things in, uh, in Larry's life that are kind of going pretty haywire pretty much at the onset. And I really love that we never established the context for their mar- quote marital troubles, uh, that it's as out of the blue for us as the audience as it is for Larry, which I think is a really great choice because rather than seeing the momentum of a marriage that is on the rocks, we're just thrown into it with as much disorder and disarray as Larry's own perception of it. Uh, and so in that sense, I think a really good uh, time saver in a lot of ways. I just feel so bad for Larry. Like, I think this is is a good job of like, just got so much shit he's dealing with. This is one of those, like, there are times where it's like very calm. And then all of a sudden my like nerves are all tied up and I'm incredibly anxious in like a good way, but also not a good way. (laughs) Like the movie's effective and I'm feeling terrible. I don't know. I like, I almost never felt pity for this man because I was just like, person the fuck up, grow a backbone. Like just like, stand up for yourself like once and i know that he eventually does unless sort of like character growth for him but just like how he was being steamrolled at the very beginning i was like dude like i want to punch you in the face myself like just just like knock it off 
This happens later on in the movie when he's dealing with the record, the subscription. So like, I don't want Santana club. Abraxas. <laughs> but um, there's a line, and we'll talk about this, but it just, what Sam was saying about like, just respond, just like do something. There's a line that the guy on the other line of the phone says when he, when Larry's ref- trying to refuse this record subscription, it's just like you get the select package or the deluxe package by doing nothing. And like, I thought that's just such a, like a great line that sort of frames this idea of like, this stuff is happening to this person. Like, what does it mean to react, to respond? And what does it mean to just like, let, let the shit happen and just sort of, Take it one step at a time. I mean, yeah, one step at a time. Um, receiving everything with simplicity, you know? <laughs> it's just like, who knows? But yeah, it, there were definitely frustrating moments where it's just like, show some anger. <laughs> well, it's because, I mean, because he is a passive protagonist. I mean, he is a, a protagonist that the story washes over. And it, it seems to accentuate how out of control the elements and, and trials of his life are as far as his ability to influence or change them. Uh, but only really because he doesn't make an effort to change anything. He doesn't really stand up for himself. As we discussed, he doesn't really uh, take action. And he is not in that sense, by contrast to someone like say, Cy Abelman, a quote, serious man. He is someone who is just allowing that the world pass before him while wanting answers without seeking any kind of autonomous change that he can affect, which is, I mean, which is what makes him in a lot of ways, I think a tragic hero is, is the word I use only because he's the protagonist, but a tragic hero in the sense that he is our main focus and is someone who has a character flaw that influences the whirlwind of circumstance around his life, which in this case is inaction. I also think there's a hell of a lot to be said about the subtext of tension between Judaism and 1960s cultural assimilation. And there's there's a lot of articles about this and a lot of examples in the movie. Danny is listening to Jefferson Airplane rather than focusing on his Hebrew studies. Uh, He's also learning the Torah by ear rather than through text and through tradition. Uh, Later on, when they're sitting Sheva, for someone they're bereaved of, Danny rushes off to watch television, which is pretty much a no-no while you're sitting Shiva. Larry himself, by contrast, also is trying to fix a television antenna reception with uh, the interspliced audio of lines of Hebrew clashing with an incoming TV signal, almost like the word of Hashem being overpowered by a saturation of media. Uh, in an article entitled, The Ending of a Serious Man and the Crucible of American Judaism, Matthew Goldman writes, quote, Larry views God as a manager, and if he takes his complaint to the right rabbi, then everything will be sorted out. That's the math that Larry is counting on, and for Jews, it doesn't exist. God is not accountable for us in the way that Christians can ask for personal forgiveness from Jesus. The Jewish God does not come here and ask us what he can do for us. The covenant is a relationship that we're supposed to abide, even as our American individualism tells us that we're entitled to whatever we want. Then Rabbi... um, a Brooklyn, a Brooklyn rabbi uh, and founder of the IDRA, uh, Joe Schwartz, has said of the film, uh, a serious man is the greatest indictment of the hollowness of much of American Judaism ever made. Uh, so in a lot of sense, it's about the clash of 1960s cultural assimilation for people of the Jewish faith, uh, which I think this movie really, really illuminates in those examples and others. It's really interesting. I never thought about it in that lens, um, but that makes a lot of sense and is making me think a lot about 
a lot of the movie now a little bit differently. And I, and I will definitely talk about the scene uh, where the son goes in um, to the head rabbi, like after um, his bar mitzvah or, uh, and when the rabbi quotes the Jefferson airplane <laughs> lyric. And so it's like a wonderful sort of dissonance, but like so funny and so perfect that like, it's like where, where to derive meaning from like holy text from Jeff Jefferson airplane. Like, like where are we, like, what are the texts that we're drawing from to like understand life? And like, I, I love, I love that um, funny dissonance between <laughs> the song lyrics uh, and uh, the, the seriousness of like, uh, you know, a young boy just having, you know, completed his reading of the, of the Torah. But yeah, I don't want to jump out. I'm jumping ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. I mean, uh, now we find we find Larry navigating the the chaos of his uh, the newfound chaos of his life and seeking answers. He visits with a junior rabbi who, in his inexperience, offers the cliche advice that Larry's is a simply a problem of perspective. Uh, in a really hilarious uh, interaction that we'll cover a little bit uh, after this, the the reigning details. Uh, soon after that. Judith and uh, Cy insist that Larry and Arthur move to the Jolly Roger Motel. Uh, Larry, pretty sleep-deprived and distracted, uh, gets into an auto accident uh, before arriving at work to find out that Danny has built up a hefty debt, as we discussed at the Columbia Record Club in Larry's name. Larry then learns uh, that at the very same moment that he had his auto accident, Cy Abelman was also killed in an unrelated car wreck. Um, so a lot that goes into these sequences that I think is pretty great. I mean, his interaction with the first rabbi, which is, uh, it's a title card that tells us this is the first rabbi. So we know there are more to come, uh, is this relatively inexperienced junior rabbi standing in for the senior rabbi and offering him, uh, basically boiling it down to, uh, looking out at the, as an example of how Hashem is alive and rich in the world, but you're seeing the world through tired eyes, pretty cliche sermon is sermonizing. Um, looks out at the parking lot and says, now imagine if you were just see, if you were a visitor, just seeing these autos for the first time and the wonder of seeing this parking lot and then offering Larry a little bit more advice and Larry kind of like uh, kindly seeing him through to the end of his explanation. But then ultimately this junior rabbi just, just finishing off the scene, turning it exactly, exactly. Larry, just look at that parking lot, which gets a laugh from me every time. And he's so earnest that it's hard to be mad at him. Like he's so, especially when the shot, when he turns back around at the end and he has a big smile on his face and the sh mm -hmm. sun is shining right on him. And it's this, a really it, clearly, it, a clearly a sense that he's like, I've really helped this person. While Larry is like biting his tongue not to interject with this, the actual lived severity and situational nature of his complaints uh, versus this broad cliche bomb that is offered by the rabbi. We then also get some, some, uh, really great interplay with other Cohen brothers property here. When, um, when he's talking to the Columbia record club representative who is voiced by actor Warren Keith, uh, the same actor who voiced the GMC finance officer, Riley Diefenbach investigating Jerry Lundegaard in Fargo. So his voice may have sounded familiar over the phone. Uh, as we said before, Clive's father, who we meet a little bit later is uh, played by Steve Park, who played Mike Yanagina. 
And when we go on to discuss the divorce in a restaurant, uh, they're eating at Embers, a restaurant from Fargo. So a bit of a Fargo hat trick going on here. Uh, there's also mention of a law firm called Tuckman Marsh, which is a law firm established in 2008's Burn After Reading. So not only are we incorporating Coen Brothers regulars in terms of the production of this film, but also in terms of its narrative and its references to other works. You know, it's, I'm glad that you're so thoroughly laying this out because I think the reason why a few times we've like jumped ahead, jumped to the end, jumped back is because this movie does kind of feel very cyclical, like mm -hmm. a wheel trying to turn. And I think that's a good metaphor for Larry of he just can't quite get there. Like he's just spinning his wheels trying to puzzle together why all these things are happening to him. Yeah, and the, and the way that we see that chaos unfold through some really masterful editing. Again, the Coens edited this film themselves, and we have this really great fake-out where, again, Larry is driving his car, and he gets into this accident, uh, and then learns, learns later of Sai's accident. Uh, the way that it's framed, we see them both driving. We see Sai about to take this pretty dangerous left where there's like this sharp right corner coming around uh, as Larry is driving very distracted, but they don't actually crash into each other. And it seems that the joke is that against expectation, only Larry had an accident. But then the absurdity is heightened when we learn of size accident after accepting that fake out. That was that was a really well done scene. Um, and again, like just as we said, the, how the, uh, the prologue really built tension nicely, that scene definitely stood out as a standalone moment that built uh, really effective tension. Yeah. And then to a total fake out. You're like, wait, what? He did the successful left turn. And then obviously something off screen happened and he and he crashed. <laughs> and another Cohen Staple killing a major character off screen. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, Christine, I agree. This was probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie because you really were just like, OK, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And where was Sai turning to? Was it to um, like was it to visit his well, his late wife. It looked or, like he was headed for a country club. I think he was golfing. Okay. And right after that, we get the harsh cut. Uh, after, well, I mean, we Larry gets a call from his office after dealing with Dick Dutton, the Columbia Records Club. Uh, and that's also a really great conversation, too. Another really great detail. He's saying, um, well, you know, the, the most recent monthly selection was Santana Abraxas. And you must have listened to it. And Larry's like, look, I didn't listen to Santana Abraxas. I didn't order Santana Abraxas, blah, blah, blah. Abraxas is a Gnostic term for God. So it's almost as though Larry is suggesting, look, I wasn't seeking answers through God. I don't find purpose through that. And so on. Or at least rather, he prefers mathematics to that. So that, again, an underpinning within the language of the movie. But then he gets the call that uh, Danny saying that, um, look, mom's really upset. You got to come home. He comes home. And uh, he says, uh, as he often does in this movie, it almost becomes Larry's mantra, what's going on? His daughter informs him that Cy Abelman has died in this car crash. And then we get almost like a hereditary, like pan down the hallway with just the uh, with just um, Judith, his wife, who has, has been seeing Cy Abelman and wants this get, wants this divorce, just shrieking in this really affecting pain. And the way that it's shot is just this, the ominous nature of like Larry having to deal with this, just long tr tracking shot down the hallway as we hear her moans. And then we get a harsh cut. It says the second rabbi. And then the biggest laugh that I get in the movie, we cut to Larry in that second rabbi's office. And uh, the first thing that he says is, she seems to be asking an awful lot, but then I don't know. Somebody has to pay for Sai's funeral. <laughs> So now he's paying for this funeral. 
before we get, I will, we're size already dead, but I just wanted to acknowledge uh, <laughs> uh, Fred Melamed's performance. Oh, as sure. Sai. It's amazing. It, like, he, he's such a wonderful juxtaposition with, like, size obviously supposed to be um, the, to the opposite energy of Larry. Sai is like, confident but like fred melamed's delivery is like in every character he plays there's this sort of like soothing tone to his voice as if everything is just evident just go with it like he plays um in lady dynamite uh he plays the eight like the agent acting agent and it's the same dynamic he's just like yeah everything is gonna be fine what I'm telling you is totally true, and this soothing, balm-like voice uh, is gonna just convince you to do what I need you to do, and it's it it fits so perfectly for this role. Um, and Larry, this is a fine wine. You're gonna want to let it sit for ten minutes and let it breathe. It's so important to let it breathe. <laughs> We're going to be fine, Larry. We're going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the combination of just like. I'm going to take what I want, like persona and mentality with this sort of like sophisticated, gentle voice. It's just such a wonderful contrast yet like combined in this character. You're like, oh, yeah, this is a this is a guy. Yeah, this this is a serious man. <laughs> it's like condescension masquerading as diplomacy. That Yep, that <laughs> nails it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which is is so great, and he yeah he's he's fantastic in this movie. He's one of the like real like shining stars of the film via how he brings that performance to life. So we said yeah, Larry is now seeing a second rabbi, a senior rabbi, who spins in this yarn about a dentist who has uncovered a mysterious message in Hebrew carved into the lower teeth of a Gentile patient. The dentist in in this story that. Uh, Rabbi Nochner is telling uh, Larry is that he became enamored with this message and its meaning. And like Larry sought answers from the rabbi who essentially tells him uh, after hearing all of this, be good to others. Couldn't hurt, which uh, the dentist within the story took as like, okay, well, that's good enough. And Larry's obvious frustration is like, well, no, wh where did the message come from? What is it supposed to mean? Why, why did he just give up on it? Blah, blah, blah. There should be answers. And one really great line that he has in regard to this is um, the, the rabbi offers that like, what is it? Something to the effect of like, God, God doesn't owe us answers, Larry. The obligation runs the other way. And Larry's question to him is, well, why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us the answers? And then the rabbi casually offers, huh, he hasn't told me. I love the way that this whole dentist story scene is shot as well, because it's like the rabbi, I don't know if it's a progressively more Dutch angle shot as he goes the story. It um, is, yeah. And you're just like, you're into it. Like it's, you know, the, the pacing is kicking up. And then he just stops telling it and is about to drink his tea. And Larry's and like, well, well, why'd you tell the story? Like, are you going to finish it? Oh, okay. Sure, well, we okay. can't know everything. Well, it sounds like you don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I just thought that was really a masterfully shot scene. And really just takes takes a moment to let us sit with like a story, like a rabbi's sort of analogy or like, uh, or, or, experienced fable that he he offers as this bomb and explanation, which ultimately doesn't provide an answer either way, both to Larry or to the person that came to him originally. And it's just so creepy also thinking about teeth, like a message carved into the back of like your teeth. Like, I don't know, like it's very visceral, but also like the way the, the dentist is going in this little micro, you refer to as a micro movie. 
um, earlier. I think this is the scene you're talking about, Dave. Yeah. And he like, st- like sticks the mirror inside his sleeping wife's mouth. Like it just <laughs> felt very Coen brothers of like absurdity, comedy, disturbingness. And the way in which he tells us the, the rabbi in voiceover tells the story is like, uh, could Sussman sleep? Sussman couldn't sleep. Could Sussman eat? Sussman couldn't eat. And it's just this, it, you feel the length of the story, even though what we're seeing is a lot of really quick cuts in like an entirely different context. So it's, it's this meandering story that fits the context of the conversation and the situation of the film, but we're treated to a whole different set of scenarios visually, which is really refreshing and a really great way to illuminate what is ultimately a meaningless story in the middle of this movie. And so from there, uh, Larry, still in this kind of fog of confusion, decides that he's going to visit a neighbor, uh, Mrs. Samsky, who is a married woman whose husband is often away. They smoke some pot together until hearing sirens. Uh, pretty great line is uh, Larry asking, are those sirens? And Mrs. Samsky is, no, some people get paranoid. Holy cow, that is a siren. <laughs> Uh, so Larry darts outside to see what's the matter. He finds that Arthur has been erected for solicitation and sodomy. Uh, Larry is now dealing with three lawyers, uh, the one overseeing his divorce, another overseeing Arthur's defense, and one for the property dispute with his neighbor, uh, the last of whom falls dead during a meeting just before possibly revealing a solution to his property issue. <laughs> so just uh, kind of like almost expressing that Larry, almost uh, Larry is so doomed that those tangentially associated with him are now being struck dead at random. And I think uh, to Connor's point of sort of the cyclical nature of all of these terrible events that happened to Larry, by that point, you expect that like I knew something was going to happen in that room. And I was like, oh, nothing can work out. The moment they say we finally found a solution to your neighbor problems, it's like, once the guy lawyer drops dead, you're like, yep, saw that coming. <laughs> Makes sense. And I really like the sequence too with Mrs. Samsky, who is obviously, you know, written to be quite this seductive character. The dark eyeshadow, her unblinking, piercing blue eyes, her lips always just parted. And her home is also seductively different as well from the rest of the settings. It's a sudden saturation of yellows and orange. The stylized, blurred frame, indicative of being massively stoned when Larry uh, and she start smoking the pot and speaking of being massively stoned i really love larry's uh response when he runs outside to the officers rather than like rationally approaching them saying like hey what's the matter he just runs out and starts shouting hey hey <laughs> and the and the name uh she's played by uh amy landecker I think. Mm-hmm. and uh she she's she doesn't have a whole lot to do but i i really liked seeing her pop up in this and She's been in like transparent and some other things. And so it's fun to like see kind of different moments of it. Yeah. She just looks, she's just there to like look seductive <laughs> and hot, but um, yeah. And I, we also like, see Larry too, like uh, kind of performing in a way when he goes over there, he's saying like, yep, my wife's got me like very casual and very flippant way that he doesn't speak throughout the rest of the movie. He's like, Yep, she's got me standing at the Jolly Roger, which a uh, little motel over by. And then he gets cut off when she emerges through this beaded curtain and scares him. <laughs> it's it's a really wonderfully comedic moment. I was really rooting for them. I was like that, <laughs> I, like I don't trust this or movie to like give you any happy endings or whatever. But I was like, they they make a good pair. <laughs> An interesting pair, at least. An interesting, yeah. <laughs> I know nothing about her, but... So now things are going wrong, not only for, for 
I mean, Larry and the family, but, uh, you know, Arthur is now in a lot of trouble. He seems to be, he's trying to use the Mentaculus to uh, influence his gambling in in this card game. But we also learn that he has been seeking, seemingly via the language of the film, you know, 1960s, the criminal, the quote unquote crime of sodomy, that being that he is a closeted gay man, um, especially within a 1960s community that is so hell-bent on not only assimilation of whatever culture or religion, but also, you know, very harsh on people of alternative lifestyles. So we see that Arthur, who is, you know, pretty pitifully afflicted by uh, by maladies and has this very uh, hunched over and uh, you know, undeniably kind of pathetic character, uh, is also someone who is tortured by more than that, is, is someone who is othered in a different way, even than Larry and his family. Um, so I think it's a really interesting detail. Dumbfounded and dazed, Larry then seeks out Rabbi Marshak, the seasoned senior rabbi uh, known for his acumen and his insight, only to find out that he no longer does pastoral work. Then after an emotional blowout with Arthur uh, at a hotel pool uh, at the Jolly Roger, uh, Larry seemingly decides to use Clive's bribe money uh, to safely see Arthur across the border into Canada to avoid criminal prosecution. Waving goodbye to Arthur from the shore, Larry watches as Arthur is suddenly shot and killed. Wildly, Larry turns uh, to see that his neighbor and his son are donning hunting gear with rifles in hand, and his neighbor shouts, there's another Jew, son! And his son takes aim at Larry and fires just before Larry jolts awake in bed, clearly having dreamt the entire scene. Uh, I really love this sequence because I think it's so great that we get this warmer, affectionate tone in Larry's dream. Uh, Arthur seems less beaten down. He's standing upright and smiling. Even Larry is smiling, which we don't see a lot of in the film. But unlike everything else, or, or but like everything else in his life, even the refuge of Larry's dreams crumble into chaos eventually. I think the manifestation of the neighbor in his dream is really interesting. And we haven't really touched on his neighbor yet, mm-hmm. who Larry seems to partially look up to, partially be a, a little bit of, you know, intimidated by. Um, he took his son I don't out. think Larry looks up to him. Well, I guess the scenes where I think it's he's, like he's Maybe he sees catch. them as a reflection of like, you know, a ubiquitous quote unquote American culture or something. Yeah, I'm like thinking kind of, of yeah. like imposed on the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking of the beginning of the movie when he's like playing cat. He's playing catch with his son, right? In the beginning. And like Larry's looking out at this like father-son bonding. Like, I think at least that element of yeah, like I see. I wistfulness. See mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. seeing like what could be in a father-son relationship, it sounds like also that the neighbor, when Clive's dad comes to him to like say, we'll sue you if you don't take the money. Maybe, you know, so many words. This is defamation. Yeah. Defamation. And so he like, sounds like he would beat this guy up for his neighbor. Like, well, so it that's sounded a, like, mm. like, I don't know. Like, it, it sounded like this guy... I, I would be curious to just learn kind of more about him and see him. Not that we needed it, but I'm just, I think it was a really great kind of side character of like harmful, but also someone who Larry like thinks a lot about someone who is like this conflicting neighbor. I'm not, I'm not being super articulate, but. Oh, I, I saw the neighbor as just like pure menace and like, I agree. like, and I thought that was an effective use of like, I don't need any more information about that neighbor besides what I'm given. I think tonally the neighbor is definitely, at least the way I read it was like situated as this menacing presence uh, between the lawn disputes, but also just like the glare, like him glaring at Larry. And like, yeah, I, I was like, I, I I think I, I, I get it. And I 
don't need anything more about this this character. I mean, I think, yeah, he's, he's posed as a bigoted representation of the hostility of 1960s Americana as concerns pretty much you know any uh, like any subgroup because because they have the 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 benefit and privilege of being assumed to be what you should assimilate to so therefore him being his neighbor is larry being his neighbor is is an imposition it's it's something other that is next door that i have to deal with you know what i mean so i i think he's a yeah he's definitely presented as uh, his neighbor is presented as something of a a menacing force as pretty clearly laid out in that dream also connor i think it's the benefit of rewatches because if you watch uh that neighbor's eyes when he does have that confrontation um when uh when we see larry speaking to clive's father against steve park saying is this man bothering you and larry kind of looks over and says well no we, if you watch he's actually looking at clive's father saying is this man is this man bothering you to clive's father not to larry because of his because of his bias. Interesting. So I might walk back some of, I still think that an interesting figure in Larry's life. And I- Oh, definitely. And the, the dream that I like, I really, part of me thought that that was like real and I knew it shouldn't have been, but I was like, oh, he's like, this is such a happy moment. I wanted to live in the happy moment. And then he's just shot dead. And then Larry shot dead and he wakes up. And my like jaw, I was like, oh my God. It's really jarring, and it's especially funny too. If you watch it for, I guarantee, if you watch it for a second time, you'll see how how the humor is so. It it, it it's shocking the first time, but it's so evident the second time where this is going. Because like we see Richard Kind Arthur turn around in the canoe and just wave after saying like, "Larry, I'm sorry," and Larry's saying, "I know it's okay. I'm sorry too." And then Arthur just turns around a second time, and says goodbye, and then gets shot in the back of the head. <laughs> So it's like clearly setting you up for the notion that these aren't these characters. This isn't their lives. This isn't actually reality. But it's such a smack in the face the first time when it's revealed that it's this frightening dream. And then we see him wake up next to his brother and say, like, Arthur, were we actually out at the pool last night? Which is this gushing emotional moment between the two of them. And it's like, yeah, we were. But everything else was a dream. This brings us then pretty much. I'm so sorry. That It's just like drills home those moments where like you have a terrible day or a terrible series of days or week. And then you have a dream that like is somewhat soothing. And then you wake up, and you're like, no, God, I still have my shitty problem. <laughs> that is nothing. <laughs> it's like that dream where you find a box of money and then you wake up like, ah, <laughs> shit, I had plans for that. <laughs> that brings us then to, um, so two weeks later from the start of the film, that being uh, Shabbos and Danny's bar mitzvah, uh, Danny and his classmate are getting completely blitzed on weed, like totally stoned before this ritual. Uh, and Danny uh, then, you know, coming into it and performing the ritual uh, after a tense moment of near incapacitation because he's so stoned, musters the, the focus to complete the rite and read the Torah. Um, Larry and Judith both are beaming with pride, seemingly reconciling their differences, but not without Judith alluding to the damning tenure letters having been written by Sai. So even that was then, such a wonderfully set up bombshell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we because collect- they're both smiling when she says it, and it's just like you see Larry just like absorb that information within a social situation where he's obligated to continue smiling, even though it's probably a total shock. Sai. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> also the way it's shot, I mean, credit to Roger Deakins, as always, I mean, there's such a beautiful, like this extremely d- shallow depth of field just that just gives us a singular focus while all the periphery is blurred. 
uh, not vignetted, but blurred, just to, to further illustrate being completely stoned. That's sort of like natural tunnel vision that can kind of set in. So it, it does a really good job of of uh, creating that uh, that sort of extremely high anxiety through camera work and through uh, presentation. And also, like, contrasting those moments of sort of perspective of the sun being totally high off his mind with shots of the immensity of the space and mm-hmm. the number of people that are there watching him. So it, it does a nice job of moving between those moments to be like, to reinforce like how intense this is as a, of a moment. And like, if he fucks up, he's fucking up in front of so like everybody, the entire congregation. And, and fucking up a stepstone in the faith. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in like a, an extremely pivotal moment. Yeah, and I think show. that was such a was a great detail of where the one of the I guess rabbi servicemen like there's like the thing you know the I don't want I don't want to say wand the the tool I, I don't know you, the term but yes yeah the, I don't the, know yeah. not wand, the, the device in which you scan the prose the Torah uh, where he like moves it down because like oh yeah he doesn't actually know the he like mm-hmm. the Hebrew he's language been learning it phonetically yeah and so when he hears them you know to help him they say the first couple of words and then he just like kicks into the like muscle memory of hearing it I thought that was a really and when he like pulls away the cup <laughs> that the rabbi gives him I just great little like mannerisms by the son yeah he seems uh, convincingly stoned as does his friend because like he's looking around at the the procession and he sees like you know his family he sees uh his sister who's looking at him with this like like very subtle like head shake and like eye roll of just like i know you're too stoned for this and also he looks over at his other friend who he's getting high with who is just like one of the most visibly high people i've ever seen in a movie <laughs> Which is a great performance on that kid's part. The son, uh, uh, the actor who plays the son is great too. It's like, it's not like a child overacting performance. He does Mm -hmm. a wonderful job of like matching the tone of the movie and just like being pretty, pretty subdued and chill, but like in a very, uh, like, yeah, just in a very effective way. Um, Because I feel like sometimes like kids can like do the child acting, oh, like overacting. And I thought this kid was like really, really nailed the part yeah it's not showy he seems to understand what the part is and and acts pretty effectively in that regard danny then actually gets to meet rabbi marshak who has become this you know throughout the film has become this sort of like lauded figure that is always kept at a distance because he's so exclusive and when he provides insight into whom he does and after a thoughtful silence when meeting danny he quotes (laughs) rather than offering him like knowledge from the scripture or any kind of like rabbi parable he just quotes the names uh, of the members and lyrics of the 1960s psych pop band jefferson airplane who um we know to him to have been listening to on his radio before before returning to him his confiscated radio urging him to be a good boy uh this then cross cuts between that situation and uh larry receiving a bill for arthur's legal counsel which is exactly three thousand dollars matching the bribe that clive provided uh to change his grade uh larry reluctantly changes clive's grade from an f to a c minus just as his office phone rings meanwhile at the school uh tornado warning has been called into effect and the students are being evacuated cutting back again larry receives an ominous doom-laden phone call from his doctor regarding his x-ray results seemingly suggesting that he's got a serious problem on his hands uh, a mortal problem on his hands and 
that again, cross-cutting just as Danny approaches his classmate with the owed $20 from his radio. Uh, Danny and his classmates look on as the funnel cloud of the tornado seemingly touches down just before we cut sharply to the credits. I think there was a question earlier on about the tornado and about that being just sort of a random, seemingly random uh, fixture within the movie. Uh, if you look into the book of Job, uh, a book uh, within the uh, the Bible and also appears in the Torah, that alludes to a man who has been tested by God to see whether or not he is true to his faith in the face of obstacles. In that case, obviously Larry. But in the end of that story, God actually does reveal himself to Job to provide uh some sort of answers and provides him uh, provides himself through the vestige of a whirlwind. So in the end of this movie, perhaps God himself is touching down to have something to say about everything that's been going on throughout the movie. Uh, just before we cut to credits. That ending reminded me, and I guess only Connor would know this. All right, take shelter. Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was thinking <laughs> about that. Exactly. <laughs> well, and there's, a... <laughs> go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just the scene also, like, the flag is flowing, and the kid's like, that flag's going to blow off, and the guy, the old Hebrew teacher, can't, like, get the right key in to, like, open the shelter mm-hmm. to go into. Very Take Shelter vibes. And it, it seems like a doom-laden ending. ending either way for both Larry and Danny. Yeah, and, like, I think, yeah, the ambiguity there is is spot on. Like, obviously, that's the way this movie ends. But I think it also has to do with uh, going back to Connor's idea of the the cycles. It's like, well, this is just one more terrible thing that's going to happen. And it might just end it all, you know, end it for both of them. Um, And I I like there's like we see Cy in a in one of Larry's dreams when he's slamming him against the chalkboard. And it's like Larry's like... I, I don't know what sets it up, but at, at one point, Sai says, like, I I know, or like, I have the answers, as if to say, well, then I mean, you're dead, you know, ever, or like, there's suddenly this revelation of, like, knowledge, and so maybe the ultimate revelation of why this is happening to, like, all these shitty things are happening in Larry's life will only be illuminated the moment of death, <laughs> But, yeah, um, it's it's Sai saying something to the effect of like um, when he's questioning the uncertainty principle is like, yeah, I see that, you know, it's flashy, it's convincing. But at the end of the day, does it really mean anything? And Larry's like, well, of course it means something. It's mathematics. It's a proof. But again, oh, Larry, the un- yeah. yeah, the uncertainty principle when he's like proves you can't really ever understand what's going on. Which and is then- ironic, too, because he's he's someone who is so fixated on finding answers through equational structure while providing a, an equational structure through his class about how you can't understand everything. But then the only certainty is death. And so ultimately, <laughs> by the end of this movie, it's like within the uncertainty and the shittiness of life, it's like, well, then the storm comes. <laughs> and I would say death and, uh, death and legal peace are the two certainties. Death and yeah. legal peace, yeah. <laughs> And so that, I mean, that's pretty much A Serious Man, a movie that tackles a lot of questions as concerns, uh, you know, the intersection of uh, traditional Judaism and assimilation, a lot of questions as concerns uh, whether we should derive meaning from uh, comforting parables or from ironclad mathematics, uh, a movie that basically drags its, its main character through the mud the entire time to illustrate those points or to illustrate nothing. Because, I mean, the... 
the Coens are kind of off shoehorned into a writing and directing team known for their quote nihilism. But I don't think this is a nihilistic movie. I think this is a movie that suggests that there are different ways to interpret the chaos of life, but that asking those questions in and of themselves will probably not yield meaningful results, which is interesting. Whether or not that makes it a movie that is a story that needs to be told, uh, however you want to define that, or whether or not that makes it a half-hearted psychological treatise, I find pretty irrelevant. I think it's just part of that weird nebulous nuance that the Coens often approach storytelling and structure through that just challenges audiences to, as Clive's father says at one point, to accept the mystery. And I think that this movie is perhaps their finest example of that. It's my second favorite movie of theirs after Fargo, which is my second favorite movie. So high stakes there. But I, I really adore this film and I really find it to be captivating on a lot of different levels. And also completely hysterical. I, I would add quickly that my favorite line in the movie is Larry when he finally does break down and finally does show some emotion uh, in his office when speaking to his, uh, well, first he does with his lawyer, but then again with the uh, the tenure board guy. <laughs> and he just offers, I am not an evil man. I went to the Aster Arts once. I saw Swedish Reverie. It wasn't even erotic, although it was in a way <laughs> which is just the scenes uh, so with good. The, the tenure board guy is so are, are really funny um he definitely even, him, even him just telling him about the guy that had the heart attack he's like he's like larry are you okay i was like oh i'm fine i'm fine there's another guy who's oh but i'm fine <laughs> and just yeah the 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 tenure guy like that character is like so it, it, he reminds me of the, like, did you get the memo, like, boss from the office? Like, not going <laughs> to outright say anything, but it's going to be just so, like, condescendingly passive-aggressive in, like, their communications and, like, Lord, like, yeah. It, it's a, yeah, those moments are, are really funny. And a lot of the criticisms I see of this movie is that it's not fun, that it's just dour, it's miserable, it's a character who's whose life just totally sucks the whole time. And I think those people are definitely, uh, you know, in my opinion, missing the forest with the trees, because I think there's so much humor in how beaten down this character gets to illustrate the point of, you know, how, how much can you understand negative circumstance? Sometimes it, this is, this movie is like a long way of going around to saying essentially, Hey, shit happens, which is part of why I love it. <laughs> But uh, any final thoughts uh, or any uh, any last um, last notes that people want to provide concerning a serious man before we uh, wrap up? What a what an interesting pick for a grab bag because I don't know what other genre or like topic or theme unless we did like Coen Brothers or just some movies we like. Like I, I it, it's it's a hard movie to define, and I think that's what adds to to my enjoyment of it. When the movie ended. Um... My roommates and I, we went, oh, come on, and then immediately turned it off. So <laughs> I, that's, you know, something, again, I'll take with me, too. It's funny. Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us uh, with this uh, installment of our grab bag theme. Of course, we're going to be talking about some other movies that we haven't been quite able to peg down uh, in terms of other categories and in terms of other things that we would would fit them into. So we're going to be discussing some other pretty interesting wildcard films coming up. Uh, one of which I know has been 
quite thoroughly researched. So I'm quite looking forward to that uh, as this coming around the bend. But until then, of course, we want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, continue sending us emails. That is at uh, butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. I got it right this time. We also have uh, some accounts on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. So uh, be sure to connect with us there. And be sure to have a look at the Movie John catalog because they've got a lot of really great podcasts that uh, if you're a fan of the show, will probably be right up your alley. So uh, does anything ha- anybody have anything that they want to plug or anything they want to recommend uh, before we round out this episode? Thanks for listening. I'll plug, I'll plug the listener. Thanks for being a listener. Um, send us some emails. And as always, uh, have a good whatever.